0: Welcome. Uh, We've been having some beautiful weather in Minnesota, summer, sunny type weather. And uh, one upside of the stay-at-home orders is that for some of you, family dinners are kind of a thing again. You didn't have so many things going on and pulling your kids and spouses all different ways. So uh, our family's been able to eat dinner together, and that's nice. After dinner one night last week, I suggested that we all go for a walk around the block. And my eight-year-old Liam, he piped up and he said, but Dad, we have gone two times. And I was a little confused, um, and I, I thought, you already went for two walks while I was at the church building today? And his sister, Avery, kind of rolling her eyes, says, no, no, no. He means two times since we've been in quarantine. So two times in the last eight weeks, I am really pushing my children. Life is very hard. Um, I hope you all are getting lots of fresh air and sunshine, and so welcome, welcome to our church family and beyond. And it is amazing to me, like Steve mentioned, that we keep hearing about people who are kind of outside the little Woodbury uh, Church of Christ circle that are checking in and, and listening and tuning in. Um, I have to share this with you because I thought this was so amazing. Uh, One of our members has a mother who does not have the internet at her house. So every Sunday morning, he calls her on her landline, and uh, then he turns the service on. He watches while his mom listens over the phone. I love it. So uh, real quick, I just want to say hello to Miss Laura Noon listening in this morning. We're really glad that you could be here And I don't have to tell you this, but your son Thomas is the best. So welcome, and welcome to everybody else who has been checking us out. We are in week three of Revival. Um, We're digging through the letters of Jesus, and and it's amazing to think about this. I've been told all my life that Jesus didn't write anything, but that's not true. He wrote seven letters that we find in the first uh, or the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation. There's seven of them, and we called this series Revival because we honestly truly think that God is up to something right now God has always been using difficult situations to bring about good things in his people and a lot of us had lives that were full of distraction we had the illusion of control and then right in the middle of March this March 2020 all of that was stripped away and so we have an opportunity to revive our relationship with God And I I think if we are being honest, this situation may be forcing us to ask some tough questions. I mean, how was my trust in God really? Uh, Are we discipling our families? Are we spending time talking with one another about the things of God? What role do prayer and Bible study and generosity play in our lives really? Now the letters we're looking at have themes, and last week Steve spoke about why God doesn't edit out suffering from our lives. Um, and, And God knows there are crucial lessons, there are crucial opportunities that can only be learned through difficulty. So if you haven't listened to last week's message, go back, it's on YouTube, check it out. So he covered two letters last week, um, and the theme that we're looking at this week also covers two letters. So if you have your Bibles, um, crack them open, you know, open your iPhone, whatever you need to do, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and we're going to read the beginning part of two of the letters that we're going to be exploring today. So this is Revelation 2.12 and Revelation 2.18. This is what it says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, that's the first letter, Right. these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword and then jump to verse 18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira write these are the words of the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze I really think we should start incorporating this language into our emails I think that would Really get people's attention. Um, I read these verses and I get the impression (laughs) that these churches are in for it. It's kind of like growing up and your mom used your full name, including your middle name. You knew trouble was brewing. Something's going to happen here. It's kind of a buckle your seatbelt situation. So something's up here. Now, I want you to look at verse 13 in Pergamum. This is the letter to the church in Pergamum. And he writes in verse 13, he says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Now I gotta be honest, as I'm working on this sermon, as I'm studying this, I cannot read these verses without thinking of like a real estate agent trying to sell a house. So they've got some potential buyers, it's an open house and the buyers are saying, so how are the schools? Oh, schools are great. How are the parks? Beautiful parks well, why is the asking price so low? And the real estate agent has to say, well, you know, uh, Satan does have his throne here, so it spooks some potential buyers, you know. Just lock your doors at night. Kids, use the buddy system. It'll be fine. I don't know why I can't help but read that and think of this. Pergamum had the largest of its kind altar built way up on this hill. It's like 800 feet up on this hill overlooking the city. So imagine something like the Hollywood sign in, uh, in Los Angeles. And so wherever you go, you can, just, you can look up and you can see, oh, there is worship to Zeus happening. It's just overlooking the whole city. Now, this could be what Jesus meant by Satan's throne, But Pergamum had dozens of these huge pagan temples. Let me give you, this is kind of the trifecta of Pergamum. They had these three good-looking guys. They had temples to Zeus, multiple temples to Zeus. They were also big fans of this other god named Asclepius. So this was a god of healing and medicine. And they actually had three temples where you could worship the Emperor Domitian. So it's not like there were lacking for opportunities of what could be Satan's throne. Pergamum was like this Las Vegas of pagan worship. I mean there were tons of ways for people to get in trouble. But I'm sure other than that Pergamum was this beautiful city. You'd totally vacation there. But I want you to know this is something that's crucially important to know about these two churches that we're talking about and really all seven of these churches. Every single part of daily life was wrapped up in pagan worship, some element of pagan worship. Now, m- most of us grew up, if you grew up in, in the States as a United States citizen, we grew up in a national culture that has some relationship to christianity so yes of course jefferson has that quote about separation of church and state uh and the first amendment congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion so yes there are those things but we've grown up with the vestiges of christianity all through our culture permeates our culture so for example the senate still says a prayer before each session uh, of the senate and it's wild to me there's an actual official senate chaplain this is a a full-time job that our uh, that tax dollars go to um, presidential campaigns still visit churches on Sunday mornings and these, uh, these, the, 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 the candidates actually will campaign preach in these churches. To this day, lots of high schools, despite all the controversy about school prayer, lots of high schools still have a prayer over the PA system before a football game. And in fact, even like, movies and TV shows always have, always have, often have a, like, a biblical quote or reference. I mean, truly. In fact, I watched a show last night, a nationally syndicated sitcom, and a character in passing says, there is no one righteous, no not one. Well, that's a quote from scripture, kind of an obscure quote from scripture. So the language and traditions of Christianity, I mean, they're still front and center in our culture. They're just part of our culture, part of who we are. But even with that, we cannot envision the degree to which religion pervaded daily life for people in Pergamum and Thyatira. Every part of civic and social life. So imagine this. Imagine you're going to get your driver's license renewed. And in order to do so, you have to make an offering at the altar of Zeus. Imagine you decide to become a small business owner. You're going to open up a little corner coffee shop and you had to get the blessing of the priests in the temple of Domitian. I mean, I mean how wild would that be? Actually, in Thyatira, his, history tells us that to be a practicing health care worker, like a doctor or news, nurse, you literally had to join the church of Asclepius because he was the god of healing. You had to be part of that temple and that temple worship, and the temple worship was messed up. So daily life for Christians were full of these moral and ethical dilemmas. You couldn't hardly walk down the street without having to try to figure out, where I, am I going to engage in, in, in pagan worship of some kind? Now, you remember last week, Steve pointed out that the church in Smyrna was poor but faithful? Well, you know why they were broke they were broke because they were faithful because they had made decisions to align themselves with God Against the culture and against the civic life and the pagan worship And so it eliminated all these economic opportunities for them So they were in poverty, which is why and I don't want to get into it But it's why I don't understand the prosperity gospel because that's just never been the way Christians have been throughout uh, throughout the centuries Now, this isn't all. This isn't all the pressures that they were experiencing. This is important. Pagan worship wasn't just some sort of individual thing. So it wasn't like, you know, you just did your thing and the Joneses down the street did their thing. The entire city had a city god that everyone was supposed to worship. So the gods might bless everyone if everyone worshiped just right and pleased them. So when they're all passing around the food that's sacrificed to idols, you couldn't just try to slide under the radar and say, oh, no, 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 thank you, I, uh, I ate at home. You couldn't do that because you were, you were uh, distancing yourself from the public worship of those city gods. So by being faithful to Jesus... You were, in the minds of the citizens of Pergamum and Thyatira and the other seven churches, you were bringing down the wrath of the gods on the entire town. So if the stock market crashes, it's those Christians. If there's a tornado, it's those Christians. If there is a plague that wipes a bunch of people out, it's those Christians. So listen, to be faithful to Jesus was to be ostracized from social and economic life in your town. Your kids, they didn't get invited to the fourth grade birthday parties. Your spouse, your husband, your wife, they missed out on promotions and contracts and job opportunities. This is the moral crossroads that these churches were at. So I want you to try to put yourself, you know, in their shoes a couple thousand years ago just for a second. Just think about the intense pressure. You have a kid crying because they're part of a Christian family and they're being ostracized by their, their classmates and their peers. Just imagine this for a second. You're thinking, man, you know, just, just a little idol worship or abject poverty. Those are the crossroads. That's the choice you're making. Just a a little meaningless ceremony, light a little bit of incense or whatever, pledge a little whatever, and or be a social pariah. Just just declare that Domitian is the son of Almighty God or, or risk death. In fact, in Pergamum, there had been a member of the church who had been put to death already, Antipas. Now, can you feel the pressure that these Christians were experiencing? So if you can, then you're in the right place to hear what this letter is saying. That's the right context. So look at verse 14 and verse 20. This is what Jesus says to these churches. Verse 14, Pergamum, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who, and then in verse 20, Nevertheless, great word, I have this against you, you tolerate. Now, Jesus is pointing something out that goes, I think, goes right over our heads because we're coming at this from a 21st century modern American Western culture. Sometimes I'll uh, get on to my children about something, and I often make the mistake of overgeneralizing when I'm getting on to them. I'll say something like, you kids always leave the cupboard doors open, or none of you ever rinse your dishes invariably, one of them, usually the one who is most personally responsible, shout out to Taya, uh, will say, Hey, Dad, don't say you kids. I don't need to be lumped in with them. I close the cupboard doors. Your correction needs to be much more person-specific because nobody likes getting in trouble for someone else's crimes. It's not fun. Now, notice in these verses, Jesus isn't calling out just the few people with the problem. This is important. He's calling out the entire church for what the few were doing wrong. This does not strike us as fair. It's like being in school and the teacher punishes the whole class, even though it's just a few kids in the back goofing off. I think it's because we tend to view the church like shopping at a big retail store. You go to Target, you go in, you grab what you need, and you get out. Now, if some family is down some other aisle with a screaming child, not my problem. If someone breaks a jar of pickles in aisle five, not my problem. If I don't want to put away my shopping cart, not my problem. That's what they pay these guys for. Conversely, think about how people think about pro sports teams. They use personal, possessive, pronouns. Like, they'll say things like, hey, did you like our draft picks this year? Our draft picks? You weren't part of the process. And somebody will answer, oh yeah, 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 we got that new corner from TCU. He looks good. I mean, a lot of you may not even live in the same state as your favorite team, but you are furious that we drafted a quarterback. Now, how crazy is that? We don't actually contribute to the draft. We're maybe cheering on from a distance. But listen, church life was never supposed to be like shopping at Target. It was never supposed to be go in, get what you need, and get out. Church life was always supposed to be like supporting your favorite team where you scream and shout and you cheer and you support. It was You were all in, all involved. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, Paul talks about this in, in the bulk of the chapter, but in 26 he says this, and this is so valuable. He says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Our, our fortunes rise and fall together. Isaiah, if you've been following along on Wednesday nights with the study by the way, there's a study on Wednesday nights, live Zoom, 7 p.m., Isaiah 59:12. Listen to how Isaiah, Isaiah is the guy preaching, He's and he, and listen to what he says in verse 12. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Isaiah is the one trying to call everybody out, but then before God, he puts himself in the same category. This is like if the kids in the back of the class that are goofing off and the teacher sends everyone, including themselves, to the principal's office. This collective language is all over scripture. Can I I say something challenging? And you are not here to tell me no. For some of us Christians, social distancing may not have been a big disruption in our spiritual lives. Because our discipleship was mostly private and personal anyway and not much has really changed and that's a tragedy Jesus in this letter is is I think pretty clear discipleship has always been a group project We like to let that one student do all the work, but we get the collective grade So think about this and this is I'm talking to you. I'm challenging you your private prayer life your personal Bible reading, your secret sin, they don't just impact you. If you aren't doing great in your discipleship, it brings everyone down. So even discipling at home, you make an impact on the rest of us. You do. All right, back to regularly scheduled preaching. So look at verse 14 of chapter 2 and verse 20, because this is the specific accusation. So he says, you guys are all in this together, but there are some people among you. Verse 14, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And there, in verse 20, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now hang on, because some of you are going to be like, okay, I'm going to check out because he's talking about stuff I don't know. Now remember, we said this a couple weeks ago, you cannot understand the book of Revelation without reading the Old Testament, without understanding and reading the Hebrew Bible. So if you're watching a YouTube video and the guy is opening up the newspaper or talking about events in the future, get out of there because you have to have read books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah to understand the language of the book of Revelation. The the author, John, is mapping out what they're going through using the language of the Old Testament. So, Balaam and Jezebel. These are two classic Old Testament villains, and maybe they're not the A-list celebrities that we imagine when we think of the Old Testament, but these were the, these uh, two featured pretty prominently in, uh, in the Old Testament. So maybe it'd be fun to uh, to hit pause and see who in the room with you can give you a quick biography of who these two people are. I mean, really, what good is Bible trivia if you can't show off a little bit? In fact, if you want to dig into these characters, uh, we do have resources in our study guide. And by the way, we have a study guide that we publish with each sermon. Yes, it's a lot of work, and you should should use it. So I want you to dig in and learn a little bit about Balaam and learn a little bit more about Jezebel. But what Jesus is doing, this is valuable. Jesus is taking a story that is familiar to his audience, and he is mapping it onto their current situation. So, some of you are like, yeah, yeah, Balaam, there's something about a talking donkey, right? And then Jezebel, yeah, I know she was a bad queen, she ruined the name Jezebel for everyone for all time. Parents don't name their kids Jezebel. I don't know, Jezebel Richie has a nice ring to it. But I want you to see what they were doing. Both of them were guilty of the same crime. Revelation 2, 14, the second half, and 2:20, the second half. So, Balaam, who taught Balak to entice, important word, the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And then in verse, second half of verse 20. Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Both these ancient characters enticed and misled God's people into sinning. So what Jesus is saying is that just like Balaam and just like Jezebel, there are people and there is teaching present in the churches that is enabling sexual immorality and idol worship Right in their churches, there are people in their midst that by what they are saying and what they are doing are ma- are lowering the bar and e- making it easier for people to sin. Now, remember, the huge pressure the citizens, the Christian citizens of Pergamum and Thyatira were experiencing to give in versus stand up for what they believed. And these people, these Balaam and Jezebel-like people, were teaching that, hey, it's okay, there's actually a third way you can have your cake and eat it too now the bible does not tell us specifically what they were teaching but we can make some guesses they were probably saying something like hey it's okay it's just a little idol worship on the side god is full of grace so he totally understands don't worry about it some of them were saying hey it's just sex with a temple prostitute Uh, yeah by the way part of their worship of their god in the temple included temple prostitutes and, and what they would say is something like, hey, God cares much more about what you do with your spirit, not with your body. Don't worry about that. That's no big deal. The body's just going to die and be buried in the ground. What you do with your spirit is really important. So temple prostitutes, have, have fun. Now, some of you are thinking, well, okay, that's great. I personally am not struggling with idol worship and temple prostitution, so I'm good, right? I can read through these letters and be like, those guys were having problems, but not me. Listen, this is so important to know. Christians today, in, in 2020, Christians are constantly at the crossroads of compromise and faithfulness. In fact, the, the very fact that we're not aware of it could be a sign that we're not really putting up much of a fight. So let's do this. Let's land the plane. And this is, this is I hope, valuable like it's been to me. I am not sure what your Balaam, Jezebel situations are. But I do want to point out that there are three um, identifiers of moral compromise in our lives. And I've got a feeling that this is going to fit some of us. There is the logic of compromise. There is the language of compromise. And because I didn't want them all to start with L, there is the cost of compromise. So let's talk about these just real quickly, one at a time. The logic. The logic of compromise. Now, there's an important distinction here because moral compromise isn't doing evil for evil's sake. This isn't what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. This isn't I woke up one morning and I wanted to commit some crimes. This isn't just being bad just to be a bad person. Moral compromise is so devious because the temptation of moral compromise, it's about pursuing good things, but through destructive means. And so we are pursuing happiness and fulfillment and validation. It's just that the shortcut that is being offered you won't actually get you there. Listen, sexual enjoyment isn't evil. Pornography is. Working hard to provide for your family is not evil. But neglecting your family because you're overworking is Finding and seeking validation in relationships is not evil, but finding it in bad relationships is. But the problem is is we feel justified in our moral compromise because our pursuit, our goals are noble. Secondly, the language of compromise. Here's the vocabulary of this moral and ethical compromise in our lives. When we start saying things like, it's just, it's just Money. It's just this once. It's just one tiny lie. It's just sex. It's just a little temple worship. By the way, I want you to know that I'm an expert in what I'm talking about because I have my master's degree in justification. It's an honorary degree because I've had a lifetime of practice and achievement. I am very skilled at telling myself why the thing that I happen to want is actually the thing that I should do. And so every time I hear myself saying, it's just, that is a warning sign. Sirens are going off. That's the language of moral compromise. Leave. But thirdly, it's the cost of compromise. When we lived in Iowa, there was a lady who was working at a uh, Dollar General in a strip mall there, in uh, the only strip mall in the small town that we had. And uh, she wanted to go home early from her job like a lot of people do. Uh, and her solution was to start a small fire in the break room. She figured the fire department would show up, the store would be closed down for the rest of the day. She'd go home and relax uh, on her couch. Foolproof plan only she ended up burning down the entire strip mall that the store was in, and now she is relaxing all day, every day, in prison. Here's the deal, not to mix metaphors, but moral compromise is like lighting yourself on fire to stay warm. And that's why these letters from Jesus seem so harsh to our ears, because he's watching people destroy their lives, convinced that they're being faithful disciples. Now, I want to wrap up by saying this, parents you know that feeling when you have a small child but things are too quiet i mean everything is peaceful but there should be more ruckus the the quiet means that the toddlers are playing in the toilet or writing on the walls the quiet means something bad is happening sometimes church our discipleship can be too quiet and the problem is, it's, that the, it's the calm of complacency. It's the peace that comes from being passive. It's the undisturbed rest of apathy. That kind of quiet in our Christian walk means something bad is happening. We're not wrestling with the sacrifice and cost of what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. We've settled into this discipleship that isn't really challenging us. Listen, I I think we need Jesus to stir things up every once in a while. I mean, listen, look at his language. This is at the end of the letter to uh, the church in Thyatira. This is verse 21 of Revelation uh, 2. Listen to what he says. He's speaking of Jezebel. I have given her, so that's a real person in the church, although he was using Jezebel as a metaphor. Imagine reading that letter. Wow. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. This is strong language strike her children dead now I, I fully believe that Jesus is using metaphorical language but I think he's talking about spiritual death and I, I but it's harsh language Jesus in these letters is like throwing a rock into a still pond I mean it's like a tsunami it's not even ripples I mean imagine reading these letters out loud in the church in Thyatira and everybody's looking over at the lady that he called Jezebel they all know I know we all think we would like to hear Jesus preach But it would be super uncomfortable because he would point to us and he would say you need to end that unhealthy relationship. He would say you need to get rid of your internet because you cannot control it. He would say you need to destroy your credit cards because consumerism and materialism is eating you alive. He would say, you need to repent and actually love and respect your spouse. He would say, you need to confess. And we wouldn't like that. We would be so uncomfortable. Jesus will challenge you. He will call you out because he loves you. Because you cannot sit by and watch someone you love ruin their lives without doing something. And if we aren't seeing Jesus challenge us, because it, it may be because we've tuned him out. Listen, revival, this revival that we're calling for, this isn't just happy, go lucky, everything will be great. Revival isn't easy, but it is necessary. Repentance isn't easy, but it is the only way back onto the path. So we are praying for revival in our church, but we understand that by doing that, we are praying for God to introduce difficulty into your life. Because you have sins that you need to confess of. You you have relationships that you need to change and get back on track. But we don't have to wait for everybody to get back in church. Revival can start in your living room. It can start right now. The Spirit of God can be working on you right now. Revival at home. Now, this is so important for us to talk about because the people that you may need to confess and apologize to may be sitting there right there with you. And they may even know that you need to confess and apologize. But we've got to take that step because revival will not happen if we're just going to allow ourselves to sit back on the couch in complacency and apathy. All right. If I didn't scare you off, come back next week because we're going to read a a letter to a church that was on life support. And I think that there's some important things for us to learn. Let's pray and then we'll uh, see you next time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful to be able to be uh, here together. God, stir us, challenge us, convict us. We pray for revival. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Talk to you next time.